Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. You know, we're on the big 3-3 three, three here, our 33rd Whoa. episode. Can you believe that? I know. That's kind of wild. <laughs> That's basically 33 weeks of mm-hmm. doing this and actually learning so much. Seriously, we're going to be the best party guests when the pandemic is over. <laughs> if, if I don't right. know if I could even go to a party. I don't right? know what I would do. <laughs> I mean, just be a freak in a corner is kind of what my my usual. Yeah, yeah. I feel like cocktails were all, the only way that I could actually be sort of like normal at a party. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like I just need a lot of cocktails to co- to to connect with people. Yes. <laughs> but now I have all these facts, so it's like people will come to me and I'll have all these facts to recite. Yeah. <laughs> Smartest person in the room. That's exactly who you want at the party. Is, yeah, is me totally. as <laughs> good lord. God, the last the last thing you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is like weird, you know, I was thinking about this last week where I was like, okay, like maybe the pandemic is going to be like not over, but like maybe we can start seeing people and stuff this summer and going places. And I got kind of freaked out me because too. I just am like I've settled into this uh-huh. way and I'm afraid of changing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, but I guess you can kind of decide now what you want to do. And it's not it's not for anyone else anymore. It's just what you you what makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was kind of wondering, just thinking about trends for the future, mm-hmm. are we gonna see a trend of even less like social activity for like millennials specifically is what I'm thinking, but we'll just be like, eh, we did that, we're done now, now we stay at home. You've invested so much in your home space and you've gotten to know yourself a little bit more and know yourself in a slightly more solitary environment and you probably are starting to kind of enjoy that. Uh, I'm sure that there's a ton of, you know, extroverted people that just can't wait to go to the club, but there's definitely (laughs) going to be a lot of people that are really going to continue to enjoy the home. I have been reading a lot about how, you know, I, we've obviously lost a lot of restaurants, which is absolutely horrible. I but, know. I know. I was thinking about that too. Where are you even going to eat? Well, I, I've been reading that a lot of people are going to be doing um, in-home entertaining. Mm, and I like um, that. A lot of more people want to entertain in their own home where they feel mm-hmm. safer. So, a lot of, you know, they're just investing in – I mean, everyone's already invested in a lot of, like, cookware and cookbooks. And, you know, mm-hmm. you've, you've developed all these new culinary skills. So, um, you know, continuing to, to um, you know, kind of support a beautiful home tablescape and dining experience and maybe, you know, glassware and things so that you can start entertaining in your own home again, kind of like it was the 70s. Right. I mean, I love that. That sounds great to me. That does sound great, you know. Yeah. Not like swinger 70s, but kind of like a really classy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, not that. Not that, guys. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, this episode, 
So we're basically winding down our 2000s trends, but we definitely have a few more episodes lined up that are pretty exciting. Um, This week, we take a really fascinating exploration into the secret histories of how movies helped shape our culture, style, trends, and even wine consumption habits. Um, And we also have some very exciting news to share with you. Amanda, would you like to do the honors? Wow, that's a really (laughs) big responsibility. Well... A lot of you have asked for this. There have been comments on Instagram, a lot of suggestion that we should do this. And I am very excited to say that we are going to be having our second guest ever next week. Uh, A very special icon to me, someone we've talked about a bunch here. Full girl crush. Yeah, full girl girl crush. I was like losing my mind when we talked Uh to her on the phone the other day. Wendy Mullins from Built by Wendy will be joining us next week. Very, very exciting. We talked on the phone with her this week, and it was like three peas in a pod. Uh Uh, It was so fun. Um, If you have any pressing questions you want us to ask her, we encourage you to either write in, email us, or email us a voice memo, or call the hotline. That number is 717-925-7417. Perhaps you have a special message just for Wendy, mm-hmm. call and we'll share it with her. I think that sounds so mm-hmm. fun. Also, you know, the episode after that, I mean, I I know it's hard to imagine how could we ever top <laughs> Built by Wendy on the department, but yeah. we're going to follow that up, make it less depressing to return to normal, just me and Kim life here at the, at the pod <laughs> with stories of online dating because you can't (laughs) talk about the aughts without talking about the rise of online dating. So specifically, we really want to hear your online dating stories of the aughts, maybe the early aughties, not recent. We don't want to hear about Tinder or Hinge or Bumble or whatever else people are doing. We want to hear about OkCupid okay, and your local like free weekly personals and Nerve. Nerve. Yes, that's a great uh-huh. one. Maybe some match.com. I don't know. Maybe you've yeah. got an eHarmony story, but uh, the wild, wild west of online dating. Yes, yes. Uh, because we're going to talk about how online dating came up during the aughts. It was not <laughs> something that existed before. The closest thing to that was like personal ads in newspapers, and you would literally like have to write a letter or something. I don't know. Or call weird voicemails. Anyway, let's talk about online dating. I know you have some stories. So call the hotline, send us an email, whatever works best for you. Um, Also, you know, make sure to follow us on our Instagram. It's at underscore the underscore department. Um, You know, we throw in a lot of, you know, kind of insider things, a lot of images, just things that kind of support what we're talking about through the week. Um, You can also find a lot of show notes and some of our references at the the department.world, which is our website. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, you know, if you're enjoying the podcast, you know, we always like to remind you just to give us a star rating on Apple um, or leave us a review. We love it. It makes our day. We send it around. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we have one message this week. It's from Chloe. So let's take a listen. Hello to the department. This is Chloe. I really love your podcast and I've been meaning to call. And I felt like, you know, after you did the magazine episode, this would be the perfect occasion because I love magazines so much. 
and have invested a lot of time in the aughts and the early oddies to, you know, working at magazines. Um, so I just was really excited to hear what you guys had to say and um, definitely love that you mentioned Jane so much and talk about Jane so much because that's the magazine that when I read it in high school and subscribed to it, it, that's what made me decide I have to work in magazines. And I reached out to one of the editors and asked him for advice, and he just said to intern. So my plan was, okay, when I get into college, I'm going to intern at Jane. So I get into college, freshman year, Jane folds, and it's so sad to me. Because just like you guys said, I was surprised that it ended. It seemed like, I mean, they had the editors on episodes of Top Model and all that stuff. And so, you know, I just moved on, and I uh, figured out the next move, and I interned in 2008 at Dazed and Confused, and then Indeed at Nylon in 2009, uh, which felt like good times to be at both magazines. It felt like, I mean, definitely 09 at Nylon was really fun. It was the 10th anniversary of the magazine. Uh, I don't know. It was a positive experience for me being there, and I can't say that for every magazine. Dazed was positive as well. Those were actually, like, the two most positive, you know, internships I've had. Uh but, yeah, I just appreciate everything you guys had to say. And it's so funny because the whole hipster conversation of it all, in 2009, I did ask my roommate. Because at the time, hipster was indeed, if you were a hipster, you would not admit to that. You would negate that claim. If anyone called you that, you would say, oh, what are you talking about? It was just an insult. And it's so interesting to reflect back and say, like, oh, yeah, we were just hipsters, and it's fine. We can admit that now. But at the time, in 2009, I asked my roommate, am I a hipster? Because I sincerely needed to know. I didn't know. I was unsure. And she just was like, oh, my God, of course. And I said, oh, but why? Why? And she said, because, well, first of all, you intern at Nylon. You are wearing jeggings. You uh, just saw Justice at Webster Hall. And there was, oh, and you love David Bowie. So these were all sort of like, you know, hipster traits and I just was like oh my god I can't believe it so I you know was told I was a hipster and then I remember going to a bar I was on a date with a bike messenger this was in San Francisco this was years after this was like 2010 not years after I guess it was 2010 and someone at the bar called me a hipster and it really ignited a whole bar fight where the guy I was on a date with was so upset that someone had called me that and he just got in a fight over it so really at that time like no you could not be called that um which is so funny to me but uh just love the podcast i'm also going to send you guys a picture of the built by wendy shirt that i still have and try to wear at least once a year that i wore a lot in high school that indeed someone at my high school told me they hated the shirt so i'll send you a picture of that hated shirt and quick thought about Clubhouse is that it's quite boring. I joined in October and found that a lot of the conversations were about being anti-vaccine or just about astrology. And I went into a room where they asked um, who's the most toxic sign. And everyone was saying Gemini, Gemini, Gemini. And I said, well, Anne Frank was a Gemini. And they were really upset. <laughs> They're like, you can't do that. It was just like, well, it sounds like you all think Anne Frank is toxic and then I left that room and then I really haven't been on Clubhouse since um yeah but anyway love the podcast bye 
Okay, well, <laughs> I have <laughs> so uh, good. Okay, well, I have some stuff I want to talk about about Clubhouse, but first, you know, I after the last episode, you know, we were kind of like, "Hey, why did Jane go away?" And you know, we kind of speculated that it was probably similar to what happened to Sassy, where like advertisers sort of jump ship because of the nature of the publication, and the kind of content they were throwing in there. And I found a New York Times article. Thank God I have that Thank New York Times. God, you have the internet, guys. Amanda. I know. I know. Uh, and I'm glad I paid for this like mm-hmm. New York Times subscription because I get into all the archives and I actually yes. use this stuff. I use it all too. the time. Yeah, it's so worth it. So I found an article from 2007 that was the closest I could come to like a clear explanation about what happened to Jane. And basically we were right. So Jane had struggled because Sassy, I mean, you and I can both agree that Sassy was trying to sell us stuff just like any other teen magazine, but it took this anti-establishment sort of anti-consumerist position while it was selling us stuff. It was kind of sneaky, right? And so what happened is all those sassy readers grew up. They were really excited about Jane, you know, and then also like other cool young people who'd never had sassy, you know, also were into Jane. And this is where it kind of became challenging because these readers were so invested in Jane and how it was supposed to be like the anti-fashion, anti-women's magazine for women. And so Anytime that Jane would like pander to a celebrity, for example, they gave Pamela Anderson her own column, people would be angry. They would be like, Mm. you're selling out, right? And they would kind of boycott the magazine, give them a hard time, you know, bombard them with hate mail. And so Condé Nast, which owned Jane, was like, we just like don't know what to do with this magazine because the normal recipe of women's magazine content is not appealing to the reader. But that's what generates ads, and that's what makes us money. Uh, They kind of – there's a lot of speculation here, but it's – the general feeling is that in 2005, Jane Pratt left, but really she was pushed out by Condé Nast because they were like, you're running a magazine that doesn't make us any money. And so – they brought in Brandon Holly. This was generally interpreted as an effort to make the magazine more appealing to advertisers. So nothing to do with readers, just advertisers. And they pushed these marketing materials out to all the advertisers saying that Jane now appealed to, quote, pretty, fun, optimistic readers oh, rather no. than the, quote, anti-establishment. Yeah. Rather than the, quote, anti-establishment angry slackers of the previous Whoa. incarnation of Jane. And advertisers Burn. were like, yeah, yeah. Advertisers were like, yeah, I don't know about that. And so over the next two years, they like left one by one. And that was the end of Jane. So that's what happened there. Uh, sorry that the pretty, pretty fun. fun. Oh, I oh, hate it. I hate that's it. That's so appalling and so yeah. painful. I mean, I feel like this is the exact same thing that happened to Sassy, where one day mm-hmm. it became like Bizarro Stepford Wives Sassy, and it was like lame, yeah. but for pretty and fun girls or something. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> magazines are tough. I get it. it like, is. You, you need money. You, the goal is to make money, you need advertisers for that. Unfortunately, it's hard to find advertisers who are going to be appealing to your readers and also, like, be cool with content that is appealing to your readers. Right. And if readers are, like, kind of anti-consumerist and anti-makeup and anti-heels. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, what do you get? You get Doc Martens and you get, you know, there's definitely 
There's definitely right. money there, right? But, you know, then you look at Bust, like, that's mm-hmm. what Bust has been doing, and that's why they are still tiny, and they have, like, a yeah. staff of six. Like, no one's making millions off of Bust. So that that is the reality, and the real mm-hmm. money is in the pretty fun reader, I guess. Um, anyway, I was really stoked to hear that Chloe also is not into Clubhouse, because I thought maybe I was just – just like turning into a mean old bag or something. But I just, I tried to listen to some more clubhouse meetings this week and I just, or whatever they're called. And I just gave up on it again. Um, I Googled like, is clubhouse lame? (laughs) And And? some other incarnations (laughs) of that. Well, first off, I found out that last fall clubhouse was already getting in a lot of trouble because they don't moderate content at all. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of like a, there were a lot of abusive situations on there where, like, no one was being held accountable. Uh, people were, were spread, spreading anti-vax and other misinformation. Yeah. Uh, there were allegations of anti-Semitism, racism, sexism, you name it, happening on Clubhouse. It still seems to be happening. So I Googled, is Clubhouse lame? And I found a Mashable article called, Does Anyone Actually Like Clubhouse? And a great article from Vulture called, Clubhouse is Dangerously Close to Becoming Our New Internet Wasteland. And they were both great. Uh, We'll link to them in our show notes, or, well, not in our show notes, but at the department.world. Some really good quotes here. It felt less like a cocktail party and more like someone selling me a timeshare. (laughs) Actually, yes, it does. <laughs> it, it does, right? It does. And everyone's trying to sell themselves. I know. That's the so, thing. Ugh. Yes. Well, here's the the next one ties mm-hmm. right into that. Everyone talked like they were desperate to network, <gasps> which isn't really how good networking functions. You don't make connections trading great point backslaps. You make them, you know, actually connecting over something meaningful. And it's true. It's just like everybody – there are, like I told you, there are people who I've come to identify now as like really angling to be like clubhouse influencers, yeah. specifically in like the fashion and sustainability area. And they just, they have their personal elevator pitch just so down and they can't say anything without introing that, even if they've already spoken in that meeting and said it already. Another quick quote is, there's also plenty of empty motivational pablum, pseudoscience, chauvinism, colorism, shameless self-promotion, and abjectness. Just shameless. Just shameless. That just is so cringeworthy. (laughs) It is. It's just like, that is not my comfort zone. And I know for some other people, that's totally fine and cool and that's their jam. But it's why I have often, you know, avoided networking Mm -hmm situations that are like that because it's just so uncomfortable to me. I don't want to go to a, an event where it's the idea is just to meet as many people as possible and like sell so them on anxiety. you. Yeah. It's just yeah. awful. It's, it just it's feels like so LinkedIn, artificial. But, but everyone's just talking. Yes. I mean, that's kind of how I feel on Clubhouse. It's like, let me tell you about my secondhand store and how I offer afterpay. Like so many people talking about afterpay on there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is Afterpay paying people to talk about this? I don't know. <laughs> um, did you know that Clubhouse has a $1 billion Whoa. valuation? Probably because Elon Musk is on there and crap. I mean, this is my question as a person who is very cynical about business mm-hmm. in general and like ludicrous startup culture because I've had to be in it. How does Clubhouse end up making money? Because they're not right now. Do they sell ads that we have to listen to before someone painfully introduces themselves? Do they sell our info, you know, like Facebook and Instagram do? Or this is kind of creepy. 
do they sell our conversations? Well, I actually, I can see about 5 million different ways they can cash in on this. I think that right now they're not really doing that much, but they are planning to do a bunch of like um, premium subscriptions. Oh, can uh, you imagine paying money? Right. Uh, some people <laughs> will like LinkedIn, LinkedIn premium, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and like exclusive access to different events or paid access or there's definitely – there's going to be a bunch of different things that are going to be paid. But I think they might also do some various things where um, the influencer can make money off of it and they'll take a percentage of it. There's just like a thousand different ways they're going to end up starting to um, to to bring in the, the big bucks. Yeah. I mean it'll be interesting to see what happens there because it's so exclusive still. I want to say they have about 600,000 subscribers, members, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's only available to iPhone, which I mean I know you know Dustin was telling me from like a developing standpoint, it's a lot easier to develop an, ad, an app for the iPhone first. But it also – it is inherently sort of classist to only allow iPhones to be a part of this. And I think that's intentional. They're really trying to be like, this is exclusive. This is for like the upper echelon of people. Uh, That's not what I hear in terms of content for sure. No, No, not at all. I think that's that's what it was originally. And that's what got everyone so excited because they're like, oh my God, all these celebrities are on here. All these like uh, pros are on here and they're the only ones that were on there at the beginning, you know, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, it started sneaking out and it was so exclusive that everybody's like, Oh my God, the chatter. But I mean, even in the summer I was hearing about horrible, like sexist rooms and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I accidentally wandered into a room where they were talk where only men were talking about whether or not it was okay <laughs> to call women hoes. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how oh I got in this. God. But I need to get back out. <laughs> so no, no, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not okay. There's definitely, there's definitely some weird stuff going on there. Anyway, just well, a, you there know. is there's a Reddit thread that you can go on to and ask that question. It's called Ask Women, <laughs> and we've refer, we've referenced it in the past. <laughs> I don't go. think having a bunch of men stand sit in a clubhouse room asking if women should be called hoes I is know. really productive. I mean, that is like it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It's just it's ridiculous. The argument. I'm going to say the full conversation. I wish I had screenshotted it at the time, but I was just so appalled. Was basically like, is it men? Hey, men. Is it okay to call woman a hoe if it's only for the sake of art? And I was like, "What? What? No. Yeah, it was it was really no. bad. No, thank you. But if anyone <laughs> wants a clubhouse membership, we can get you. We can hook yeah, you up. Yeah, I have like a thousand yeah, now. Exactly. Please, someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll get right into the meat and potatoes here. Um, movies drove so many trends. It wasn't like it was now. You know, back in the aughts. Don't forget, we had video stores blockbuster you know <laughs> guys you couldn't even get netflix in the mail until like maybe 2006 yeah something like that i mean this was like you had to make some major effort to see a movie yeah you had to go to the video store which actually was kind of a fun event but don't forget the worst part was trying to re- to, to uh, uh return the movie on time how many late fees did you have piled up Oh, my God. I can't even handle – I had reached a point where I was like, I just can't handle the pressure of renting movies. So I'll just never see it. Basically, 
all the movies we're going to talk about tonight, I have seen, but like I haven't seen that many more movies <laughs> on top of that because I was like, I cannot handle the pressure of getting a movie back on time. Like yeah. I have the world's weight on my shoulders. I cannot add a DVD to that pile, you know? <laughs> and, and DVDs would get like scratched up oh, really God. easily. Yeah, There's, you'd rent one, you'd bring it home, you're all ready, you got the uh-huh. popcorn, maybe it's a date, right? You're all like excited and giddy, you put it in, <laughs> it won't le- go past the menu screen because it's all yeah. effed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or you have a VHS, remember you could still get VHSs, mm-hmm. or you get them at like the um, the the used store or whatever, the, mm. the, the, the what do you call thrift it? Store. Thrift store. The thrift the store. Used, <laughs> the thrift store. Yeah, you can get all those VHSs at the thrift store or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have just tons of DVDs and VHSs in your own library, kind of like you did with CDs. Um, uh, you know, there was just also a lot less movies coming out and available than there are now. Uh, streaming mm-hmm. wasn't just pushing content to your couch constantly. You waited for, you know, like six months. Remember, you'd go into the, the theater and see a trailer for something that was like a year out. And you'd just be like, oh, my God, I cannot wait to see that. Yeah. And it would be like six months to a year before you could rent that movie. Yes. Yes. It would take forever then. And you kind of already forget about it. And then suddenly it came to DVD. And it was like, you know, $25, which back then was actually kind of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And soundtracks were super popular then, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you actually learned a lot about music. You bought the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You really liked it. Oh, my um, gosh. I was actually thinking about mm-hmm. how much I learned about music that was like – I don't want to call it classic rock because it wasn't. But music that wasn't like contemporary, yeah. like that was from the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, and so on because of movies. I was actually thinking about that. Tonight, because while I cooked dinner, I listened to the soundtrack to The Virgin Suicides, which we're going to talk about yes. later. And yes. I was like, I remember that, like, that is when I got really into Heart, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, do they make soundtracks to movies now? I don't know. That's a good question. Because sometimes when you're, like, searching a song on Spotify, they'll be like, oh, this was on 1,000 Days of Summer or whatever the movie's called, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, God, I don't want anyone to see the fact that yeah, I heard the geez. song. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, actually, I think I enjoyed that movie, but I sometimes think about it and get angry. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe it's actually not a good movie. And I wonder if I should rewatch it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you should rewatch it. I, I, haven't, like, I haven't watched it recently. I feel like it might not hold up. You know, there's like stuff you watch now and you're like – Man, everybody in this movie is a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, why did I think this was so cool? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, and this, this speaking of soundtracks and really, and movies that I rewatched recently and was just like, oh my God, I really don't like this movie. Swingers. Oh God, oh, does not hold up. Does You're not like, hold up. It's like so much toxic masculinity. So horrid. Yeah, yeah. Horrid I mean, amounts. I will say that, like, most of the time, my problem with movies that I once thought were cool, or at least we have been socialized to believe were cool, right? I go back and watch them now, and I'm like, there's so much toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. There's, like, emotional abuse and gaslighting. Mm -hmm. The attitudes about gender and, like, consent are really fucked up. They probably say something really transphobic along the way. There's definitely weird racial dynamics. Oh, everyone's white. It's like, I watch these movies, and I'm like, whoa. They seem just as dated as something that came out in like the 60s. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, well, the biggest movies of the years, like within like the aughts period, um, I think are still, I mean, I still am kind of, it's unbelievable that they, they were from the 2000s because I feel like they, people still watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel relevant still they for feel, sure. They do. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, uh, Shrek. And Amanda, Shrek 2, which was actually bigger than the first Shrek. <laughs> How? I mean, I guess I think that happened well, with, like, know. Star Wars and, like, mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back. So it can, mm-hmm. can happen, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It's like Shrek 2. <laughs> but, you know, trends come in all shapes and sizes. And there were some really great indie and kind of off from mainstream films that blew us away and caused serious ripples. And I actually think it's really funny is some of these – Movies that I thought were kind of indie actually had massive backings from um, from the from the film industry, you know. And that was one of the reasons why, why everyone saw them is because there was just these these big people behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the first one I'm going to talk about, and I tried to rewatch this this weekend, but for some reason it's kind of screwed up on Amazon. And it's the subtitles weren't there. So it was all in French. And even though it said it was it was English <laughs> subtitled, it wasn't. So I was just like, well, I'm not going to get much out of this because I, I don't really understand it. And I do remember because I've seen it a thousand times, which was Amelie. <laughs> yes. Yes. When's the last time you think you've seen Amelie? You know, I kind of can't believe I haven't rewatched it because in the past couple of years, I think it's just like – well, especially during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Dustin and I have been really nostalgic about watching movies from the 90s and the aughts, but I feel like I probably haven't seen Amelie since the oddies. There was a time, and I'm sure you experienced this too, where you would go to a bar and this would be on on the television, like, yes. you know, no sound because there'd be a sick DJ, but like yeah, right. it was just background for so long because it's so visually appealing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, Amelie came out in 2001. Isn't that unbelievable? So it came out right after 9-11 and actually became the highest grossing French film ever released in the U.S. The movie edited out all the dirt and graffiti and crime and grime. And Americans went wild for the Parisian chic vibes. It, It kind of sparked this new obsession with this like Francophile, um, love affair that white ladies started to embrace. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure, for sure. I mean, I feel like the haircut was around Yeah. Oh, for so long in Portland specifically. Yeah. I think it's still around in LA. Yeah, I I could agree with that. Mhm. Uh Mamar where the film was centralized became a huge tourist destination leading the charge in French fever that is still really popular today and the girl's name Amelie actually soared in popularity and continues to be actually kind of a cute name. Mhm. Yeah, it is um, cute. You know, we had a newfound love affair again with creme brulee. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yes, it was <laughs> Yes, it would show up in a lot of restaurants for yes. sure. Yeah. It was like it, it was it was being added to menus more and more as people were kind of going back to that classic, um, that classic dessert. I think this was also during the time when that molten lava cake was really big. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Also, I just want you to know that at Costco you can buy like a flat of these like molten lava mixes or something. I don't know. We always we we haven't bought it. I'm sure it's delicious, but we always like 
jokingly like put it in the cart. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good joke. It is. It is. Like you have a last minute. Oh my God. Can I just tell, can I just say one really, okay, this is totally not related. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you one Costco story and maybe I'll edit this out. I have no idea. No, please. I love a Costco story. (laughs) Okay. So Dustin and I were there like a month ago. I mean, we don't, there's not a lot of stuff we buy from Costco, but I was specifically there to buy an external hard drive for all these damn podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. And we're in line to pay. And it's like really weird because there were a lot of people in line, even though the store didn't seem busy. And there was this woman and she was off the side and she was in one of those like carts that you drive around. And she's standing next to like a pyramid of just like, I mean, many, many, (gasps) many gallon-sized bottles of laxative. (laughs) And we're all like, she's right there on the side of the line where like many people are lined up, like 50 people are there. And her husband, I guess, uh, he's like on the other side of the line. So she has to yell to hear to him, (laughs) for him to hear her. And she says, hey, don't we need some of this? (laughs) And she gestures at these like, Kim, they were like gallons of like stool softener or laxatives or something. It was Miralax, whatever Miralax is. And he was just like, no, we're good. And he like walked away. That's when I had to wait so long to laugh about it, like until we left the store. And like, I'm like cry laughing right now. And this is like a month ago. Were they wearing masks to cover the humiliation? I hope so. I hope so. Don't we need a bunch of this or whatever she said? It was so funny. (laughs) Anyway. That's just – isn't that something you just kind of quietly text? Yeah. Well, yes, for sure. I mean, that is – if Dustin and I needed a gallon of laxative, I would surely text him before (laughs) I would yell it. Now, everyone knows someone in that house Mm -hmm. or both of them can't poop. Exactly. Which is serious. And then then everyone's like looking in the cart and all they see is like dairy and meat products. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're like, well, I think I know what the problem is here. (laughs) Put in in some fruit and vegetables. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, I'm sorry. I totally – we're talking about Amelie. (laughs) (laughs) Such an non-Amelie conversation. (laughs) Well, because of the movie, going back to the movie, the garden gnome started to see some significance culturally. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Right? It was such a trend. We were selling them at Urban Outfitters too. I thought, I was actually really curious if you had a bunch of of gnomes because I remember seeing them at Urban Outfitters and, you know, just like like little figurines. Yeah, Maybe like for your car or for your your desk or something, not necessarily the big ones. Totally, totally. I remember we had like... Especially at Christmas time, the holidays, like in oh. the gift shop, we had like like ones that you could attach to your dashboard of your car. I think there was one you could clip on your bike. There was definitely like a gnome that was for like in-house plants, you know, one for your desk at work, all kinds of gnome nonsense, gnome air fresheners. Yes. Like just, just, yes. It's like anything gnome. It's basically what owls became. Yes. And then, um, what unicorns then became in the aught. Audis, yes, and yeah, now totally. I think it's like llamas. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, God. I had totally forgotten about gnomes. Yeah. I actually did too until I started researching this. I was like, oh my God, gnomes were everywhere. And the pop culture status 
became actually a key figure in the sport of what they called gnome spotting and gnome napping. So lots of gnomes started to get disappearing. Um, there was also a whole marketing ad campaign by Travelocity based on this prank. Oh my God, I remember yes. this. What? Remember, is remember so the weird. voice? Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually surprised that it, we're we're still not in gnome time. It's definitely like a, a a pop culture key figure, you know? Maybe it'll come back. I mean, now that we're talking about it, I'm like, gnomes are fresh. You know, I mean, it's- yeah, I should. I'll put some on the Instagram. <laughs> See Just what a bunch of pictures of, of gnomes. Yeah. So you guys need to start making a viral gnome movement. <laughs> See what we can do. <laughs> so weird. But you know, it had that like kind of nostalgic, cute, but like really weird significance. Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah, I, there's actually, you know, there's there's a whole history of the gnome as well. I didn't get into it. I was just like, I'm not getting into this right now. <laughs> this is in the gnome cast. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like a whole a whole backstory about the gnome as well. So I was just mentioning it. Um, <laughs> um, and then much like Wes Anderson, the movie was about the quirk with, uh, you know, like quirk and quirkiness about with a centralized quirky girl figurehead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and quirky was so popular, which we'll talk about throughout this episode with a bunch of different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for outsiders, um, you know, often like that more hipster set who didn't feel like the mainstream style of Paris Hilton or Britney Spears. It was all about like sex, you know, mm-hmm. quirkiness mm-hmm. was something that was you know, it it wasn't about sexy at all. It was about being kind of cute and pretty, and you mm-hmm. know, it's a different a different thing than the mainstream. Um, and actually, it's funny. I was trying to to look up the word you know Parisian style two thousands and things like that, and all I got was Paris Hilton stuff. Really? <laughs> yes, I guess, so. I guess so. Oh my god, that is so funny. The other Paris. Yes, it was just getting completely crushed by Paris's style. So I was having a hard time really finding a lot of information on the Parisian chic because it no matter what I typed in, it was just it was that just Paris Hilton. So and I was like, oh, this is not what I'm looking for. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, but women idolize this retro Parisian chic, the midi skirt with the clunky black shoes. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah. S- super simple looks, minimal with a, with like a splash of color mm-hmm. and cardigans. Yep. Oh, you yeah. Know, and there isn't a lot out there about the, 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 the cultural significance about Amelie changing the landscape of American trends. So I'm just kind of recounting this from memory. So, Amanda, if you have more to add. I, I, I kind of assumed that you would because I'll get to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, mod- you know what I'm thinking right now. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Hold that thought for okay. a second. Yeah. I, you'll have plenty because right at the end in about three sentences, um, you'll have okay. <laughs> all the room in the world to talk about this. So the movie was heavily stylized in such a, a refreshing way that we hadn't really seen that embraced color, like crimson red and that that Kelly green with notes of gold. And I remember specifically buying, I actually even have a picture of myself, but I specifically went out and sought out red and green after watching this movie. And I felt like they were like really, like really flattering and really exhilarating. I I, I actually even looked up Pantone colors of the year, which neither of these were really on there, mm-hmm. you know, but the micro bang and the pixie type crop was so popular during this time frame same with that petite waif that we had talked about where that body type of just like kind of uncurvy boyish skinniness um 
where the main character was just like this in- insanely tiny 2000s skinny girl that, you know, I, I remember just looking at and just wanting to uh, like idolizing, you know, and wanting mm-hmm. to be like that and trying to be like that. But my body type is not. I am, you know, <laughs> right, region, right. I will oh, God. literally never be this. It was just like, man, I mean, we've talked about this before, but mm-hmm. in this decade, you could not win with your body. <laughs> no. Like, it was always wrong, you know? Ugh. Always. Always. And then Mod Cloth opened one year later, and it wow. featured a rather familiar look. And Amanda, I'll let you. I mean, every, you know, when you were talking about, like, the cardigans and mm-hmm. the the midi skirt, the clunky, clunky shoes, all that stuff, I mean, that – I'm sure it's still what's selling at Mod Cloth. And these were like <laughs> yeah. the key item attributes mm-hmm. for us. You know, like that is going strong. We definitely looked at Amelie. We looked at Zoe Deschanel. Like these mm-hmm. were our brand role models, you know, our brand muses, if you will. And so I don't think that that look has gone away. You know, like I think it's still very relevant to a lot of people. And actually, as you were describing it, I kind of was like, this feels like it's going to make a comeback. I think it is. I think yeah. we're, we're right now in like I, – I actually just saw some photos from the the nanny. And I was like, holy crap. We're in the nanny right now. Like oh, that's wow. the trend of just like wild. Fran Drescher. Wow. Now, and I was like, when is it going to be these this indie set's going to come back? I, I just feel it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think we're like a baby tee, time. Yeah. a cardigan, like um, a, a midi below the knee skirt and chunky, like kind of Doc Martin Oxford shoe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's like what I'm basically wearing right now. So I, I there you go. I I get. I feel it feels fresh to me, especially mm-hmm. after all those years of like really high heels, and then there was like the minimalist shoe trend, and I I don't know, like there's something. I feel like this is the natural progression from cottage core for a lot of people. Yeah. Like like 2000s early 2000s hipster vibe. Mhm. Mhm. With a little totally. Parisian chic um thrown yeah, in there too. Yeah. Totally. I mean it's like so funny because I I did feel like there was a certain type of girl in that time period who was really into Paris. We all had that friend, right? And like that was like their dream trip mm-hmm. or they'd gone and had like changed their lives and like that was like people who would like on their internet dating profile say they were francophiles, you know, like mm-hmm. that was a thing. I mean, I, I'm looking at some pictures right now. I'm looking, I had this picture that's pasted in here and, and I'm just realizing that I actually wore that in the, in the nineties. Like, <laughs> like I wore the, um, the John Fluvog, um, Oxford shoes and tiny little like, um, rock tees and these kind of like longer midi skirts oh my gosh me too i like i can picture myself wearing this whole outfit in like 1998 yes yes Yes, exactly 1998 yeah totally totally i remember i had a black midi skirt in particular that was my favorite that i had gotten at rampage remember that store i would wear it all the time and i thought i looked like a really cool like grunge Mm -hmm writer like that was what I was going for um I will say I just wanted to say about John Fluvog uh John John has been churning out some really cute shoes lately uh Meg Mm. who is the content producer for Close Horse Start World has been sending me some cute John Fluvogs where I'm like whoa I think something's going on there 
I mean, we also talked about how we wore fry shoes mm-hmm. in, in the in the early aughts. Like we were like, what shoes did we wear? In the aughts? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, totally. In the nineties, I wore flu bugs, and in the the early aughts, I wore these like b- these fry brown boots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Amanda's like, yes, I wore the exact same. Thing. Oh my gosh, yeah, I had this one pair of fry boots. I remember they were major splurge. They went almost up mm-hmm. to my knee. They were the cowboy western style. They were yes, olive green that. with like ivory stitching. And I wore them every day with mm-hmm. everything yep. for probably three years straight. Yep. Me too. Oh, they're so good. So good and so comfortable. Walked yeah, everywhere. Yeah, bring them back. My feet were probably – have not been happier since. <laughs> Anything else on Amelie before I move along? No. Let's keep going. We got a lot right. to talk about. Yeah. Right. So actually – um uh, Neil was talking to me about this a little bit, and and this is all about the movie Sideways, which I didn't realize completely changed the wine industry for decades. Wow, interesting. I mean, so this movie came out in – I know. <laughs> I was like, I've, I've watched it a long time ago. The movie came out in 2004, and it had that like indie feel, but it had the backing um, of the industry and really big bucks. So it was everywhere. And it featured two middle-aged – I actually just rewatched it. So this is why I'm remembering this. Um, two middle-aged, emotionally stunted, and absolutely horribly dressed men on a road trip into like, Santa Barbara. literally the least appealing guys ever. <laughs> so I actually did not see this movie for the first time until a few years ago. And that is primarily because yes. around 2010, I had this boyfriend who – the one who was the really bad extra on mm. Portlandia. Might as well just mm. say that. You've seen him now. That one, yeah. And he was always going on about this movie. And he was just such a pretentious fuckface about so many things that it really turned me off the movie. And then I watched it a few years ago uh, with Dustin, who had never seen it either. Because he kind of had had a similar experience where some someone – who was like a like a toxic person in his life had also talked this film up mm-hmm. as loving it and i was it all like made sense to me because these guys are so they're like the exact guy you don't want any of your friends to get involved with right exactly total and, losers and i just thought it was so interesting that like the mm-hmm. guy who i had gotten involved with who loved this film was such a fuckface too yeah. Like, it just made sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> everything about them, even down to, like, their pretensions – well, Paul's pretensions of, about wine. Um, but just even to, like, their their ethics. Oh, I've, total scumbags. Total, <laughs> total scumbags. But it also – I'm sure it also – the pretentiousness of this, like, wine obsession probably mm-hmm. really appealed to really pretentious-leaning people to be more pretentious about something. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like, oh, great! Now we can open up a whole new world of products to be pretentious about. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. Um, anyway, so uh, it follows these two guys on a road trip into Santa Barbara adjacent wine co- country, which is was like basically really under the radar um, as a destination for wine lovers, and um, even going to wineries as an activity wasn't something that was extremely popular then Mm-mm. either. Mm-mm. I think the movie is actually really solid. And if you haven't seen it in a while, totally rewatch it. You know, it features Paul Giamatti as this amazingly performed down on his luck divorcee. Mm-hmm. Oh, in, 
Yes. Droopy pants. Totally. Like the wardrobe is so on point. Like you can think these guys are terrible and still enjoy this film. I mean, it is so well done. Uh And I feel like actually it can really help you see some people from your life with a lot Mm -hmm. of clarity. I actually had a really positive experience watching it because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my God. Yeah. It all adds up now. Absolutely. I mean, and it's like, it's like, it's below norm core too. Like it's so brown. Yeah. There's like the clothing is so brown. Like that- if, if you need to feel attracted to someone to watch a movie and enjoy it, then you might not want to watch this because this yeah. is the exact opposite of that. It is and I think very unsexy. To be. He's not yeah. supposed to be an attractive divorcee, you know? Yeah. And- well, imagine if he was, how different this would be. Like if he was physically attractive but just well, otherwise the same the uh there were originally talking about casting george clooney and brad pitt in this damn that would have been a different movie. totally different movie and yeah. the, the director was like absolutely not this is not what this movie's about yeah it would have undone the point yeah. of the script with those two I mean, and so interesting. everyone was everyone in it was kind of um you know un sort of you know unknown you know like had obviously been in the industry for a little while but wasn't like a ma- major celebrity. And of course this was like a platform for uh, them to actually become celebrities afterwards. Uh, I mean, Sandra O oh is in it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, lots of really good, you know, lots of really good acting. Um, it, uh, Paul Giamatti is this kind of total wine snob and a writer <laughs> with this amazing vocabulary. He, the way that he describes wine, particularly if he doesn't like it is <sighs> such a joy to listen to. There's yeah. nothing more enjoyable than listening to him pretentiously go through this smug wine tasting with Sandra O oh and describing a wine as flabby. And I keep using that <laughs> word. I'm, it's like, it's flabby. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious the way yeah, that he describes the wine. <laughs> um, and I can imagine why a lot of like wine snaps back then who probably didn't have a lot of self-awareness and the fact that this is, you know, it's not necessarily a mockery, but it 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 there's like a there's a there's a comedic aspect to this character, how they probably really enjoyed the way that he described the wine. Oh yeah, for sure. And Sandra O oh is wearing one of those curvy metal arm bangles. Oh my gosh. You know, like on her arm. Do you remember like it was like an yeah. arm bracelet? That was a bad look. I'm glad that's gone. Is that coming back? I hope not. I you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it seems it feels so odd to mm-hmm. me. <laughs> so the movie earned an Academy Award, uh, five Oscar nominations, and it really propelled a lot of careers forward. But what is most fascinating is how much it changed the wine culture and wine industry. It really glamorized the appreciation, culture, experience, and activity around wine, changing just so many aspects. So although wine culture and enjoyment was on a slow upward trajectory through the 90s and into the aughts, Sideways made really obvious and direct impacts that we still see today. So what's still called what I quote, the sideways effect, uh, positioned Pinot Noir, the underdog of a grape at a point of monumental obsession in California wine country after this movie came out. Paul's character goes on and on into an infinite amount of detail about how special the grape is and why it is his favorite. And even though it was rare at the time, a wine industry an- a- uh, analyst interviewed by NPR states, and I quote, 
Pinot Noir production in California has increased roughly 170% since Sidewaves was released. Comparatively, California wine grape production was only up about 7 to 8%. So that's huge, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. huge based on demand of people coming after watching this movie and demanding Pinot Noir. So the prices for Pinot Noir soared, coinciding with the change as demand increased for this unrepresented grape and continues to have a positive connotation to this day. I mean, you probably still drink Pinot Noir. So what was lost during this offset of demand? Well, Merlot. Um, A 2009 study by Sonoma State University found that Sideways slowed the growth in Merlot's sales volume and caused its price to fall. But the film's main effect on the wine industry was a rise in the sales volume of the Pinot Noir, which, of course, I just said, and in overall wine consumption. Um, Merlot, which had been extremely popular in the 90s, had a small cameo, a single interaction, if you will, a phrase. It was uh, one of the highest produced grapes at that time, and it was everywhere. Paul Giamatti's character hates Merlot. We find out because his ex-wife loves it. He yells, he yells he at it. He would exactly. He yells at his friend outside a restaurant before a double date with two women that they meet, and this is what he says: "No, if anyone orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot." And that's it. That's what did it. And the Merlot industry became crippled, and it never really bounced back. That is insane. Like, we go to Silver Lake Wine, and there are only, like, a couple of bottles of Merlot. Yeah. Neil specifically buys the bottles of Merlot to support the Merlot sales. That's that's something I would do. I get it. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I oh. I here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guy. I mean, literally, just one quote completely devastated a whole – crazy because merlot is fine it's fine but executive food and wine editor ray isle points out that there's a reason merlot made for an easy target at the time and he says merlot's a wonderful grape but if you plant it at the wrong places and overcrop it it gets a lot of crappy merlot which is basically what was going on at the time of sideways so it makes sense you know obviously The people that are probably writing it, um, you know, knew a ton about wine. And there was probably a lot of crappy Merlot just going around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, of course, the film drove um, a a ton of sideways loving enthusiasts and new wine interest to the Santa Inez Valley, which was where this was filmed. Um, And Mm -hmm. prior to the movie, wasn't as big as Sonoma or Napa at all. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Mm-mm. For a few years after the film, the wineries in that region had tons of new customers, many not as serious as the original wine lovers and a lot of novices Mm. new to the hobby and learning about grapes and wine. Beyond that, wine consumption increased overall in the U.S. with a 30% higher increase in demand from the previous decade and increased average per capita consumption about 25% over 10 years, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Tasting rooms all over became the cool thing to do. Sideways showed this kind of new wine subculture and explored a new tourist potential, an exciting adult experience with Bucknellian potential. In the area, 
that this was filmed, wineries were reporting to see 50 to 70% increases in traffic, crediting huge leaps in tourism to the movie itself. There was also a boom in small wineries opening up more than before, often half the size of original larger guys. In the 10 years after Sideways came out, the California wine industry saw their number of bonded wineries grew almost 120%. And wine production in the U.S. increased by 22%. So most of the wineries that opened were actually smaller. And they were moving away from the traditional standard wholesale system, relying on tourism and their tasting rooms that we saw in this movie to supply direct sales. So basically, TTC with just a higher margin. I mean, you know, there's a lot of wineries that you go to these, uh, the wine country, and you can't get these wine uh, wines in any sort of retail outlets. You can only mm-hmm. get them at the winery and, and explore at the, the tasting room. So, you know, Neil and I went up to that region in the fall, and I didn't even realize that Sideways was based there or kind of remember the movie. And now, you know, I definitely want to go back um, and explore it myself. He said that he has gone to some of the wineries that were featured in the movie and you know a lot of them are just bigger and some of the more interesting or fun ones were the ones that opened up afterwards that explore that dtc um like organic and you know just smaller um wine um anyway but you can get a map and you can walk in paul's footsteps and yell about merlot too online (laughs) if you ever want to go there Wow. Have you gone there at all? Well, you missed my favorite part of the movie, which was ample <laughs> showing of Anderson's pea soup. So I oh, have been up that's there. that's right. That's uh, right. The, the soup is delicious. You should go have it. Um, and yeah, I had some wine I've up there. I've had it. I've definitely had it's it. Fine. I mean, I've told you. Mm-hmm. You could give me a $4 bottle of wine and I will be delighted. Like, yeah. I just don't have the education around that. Yeah. Um, but I had some good wine up there. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the a pea soup, the highly pea soup. recommended. Five stars. <laughs> well, uh, um, the other character, which is Thomas Hayden Church, plays the friend. He's kind of sexy. Just sexy saying. with terrible morals. Yeah. Um, and those, those like – Really, those like the shirts is like the button up shirts with the really, really long half sleeves are just so <laughs> yes. atrocious. Yes. But he's basically us, he's like the everyman. Where Paul Giamatti's character is just going on and on and on about the scents and the notes and like, um, you know, the wax, it just like uh, waxing on about the the um the wine itself and he's just like mm, tastes good to me <laughs> and i'm like that's just me yeah totally yeah. i'm like i relate yeah i'm like you could yeah. it could be anything and i'd be like this is great <laughs> gotcha negro franzia amanda's yeah. happy with it all i've had some wine that i have not liked but in general i'm like as long as it's yeah. that sweet i'm fine with it and also i don't like a chardonnay but who does right chardonnay is mean, disgusting yeah but like i in general i'm like pretty easy to please when it comes to wine so if you ever invite me over mm-hmm. anyone who's listening don't don't go spend 20 dollars on a bottle of wine under 10 is fine for me i mean i do love an under 10 bottle of wine with soda water as like a spritzer exactly me too that's all i need that's all I so need. good and there's also um beyond 
pea soup anderson there was the hitching post too which was yeah. the, the restaurant heavily featured in there yes. and you could still get their wine too and that saw insane volumes of people coming through actually when dustin and i were watching sideways we were like now we'd like to go there yes. so. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. i was like next time we go up yeah there, wanna, it looked good it looked good go to the hitching post too yeah all right my last movie and this one's a little bit controversial on whether you like it or not. Amanda, what do you okay. think of Napoleon Dynamite? You know, as I mentioned, I am always the last person to see a movie, right? So we were already selling a buttload of mm-hmm. Napoleon Dynamite merch at Urban Outfitters, and people were talking about it all the time. And so I knew of it, but I no one could explain to me what it was about. I, You know, this was like a pre-YouTube era, so it's not like I could watch – the trailer on the internet or something. And so I had no idea what it was about, but I was on the wait list to get the DVD from the library. (laughs) So so probably a year later, I finally get to watch Uh the DVD. And like, once again, I had no idea what this movie was about. I could only piece it together based on the vote for pager Mm t-shirts and like other weird nonsense. We sold at urban outfitters and I laughed so hard yeah. at that movie. And so I could, funny. It's so funny. And I could understand why no one had been able to describe what it was about to me. Well, <laughs> I think I think there was a lot of exhaustion over the Napoleon Dynamite, which is what mm-hmm. let people roll their eyes. Like, I was like asking Neil to rewatch some of these movies with me. And, he, and I was like, and Napoleon Dynamite. And he's like, God. But of course, we were watching it. And we're just laughing. Oh my know? god! I, you're making me want to rewatch it because I think of him when he's feeding the llama. Tina, Tina. Tina you slut! Yeah, T- oh my god. Tina, come get your ham. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so, it's so funny. And like, like, like I said, I couldn't understand what the movie was about because I knew that there was some sort of election. There was some sort of pivotal mm-hmm. scene where Napoleon Dynamite does a dance, and I knew that there was something about chapstick because people were yeah. always quoting it. And I was like, I cannot make sense of what this movie yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, the plot line is very loose. It's yeah, kind of yeah. more about the aesthetics and the quotables and just like the nostalgia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh, so good. It makes sense that you don't really know what it's about. So in 2008, the New York Times reported on something called the Napoleon Dynamite Problem. The year prior, I think it was even maybe even a little bit earlier, 2006, I think, Netflix, which was not the the streaming service that we all know and love today, but a web-based DVD rental company, (laughs) um, was holding a contest to try to improve Cinematch. It's their recommendation engine. The prize was $1 million going to anyone who could make Cinematch's predictions 10% more accurate. But this was proving to be an impossible feat for more than two years. Over 30,000 hackers and professional programmers had their hands in the contest, and they were constantly foiled, mainly because of one Napoleon Dynamite, (laughs) (laughs) which was so polarizing, it became literally impossible to predict based on what other movies you liked if you would actually like Napoleon Dynamite or hate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, of course, the goal was to be as close as possible to suggesting your preferences for a, a fana- a fan- uh, for a fantastic user experience and for mm-hmm. the humans on the other side of the screen to continue to trust Netflix, you know? 
Mm-hmm. So the system is programmed through algorithms to take safe bets on what you would like based on your preferences and data sets of thousands of ratings and reviews that often showed cohesive correlations, which could easily string suggestions together. This does obviously open up the conversation of pre-Netflix experiences and even nostalgia, where you would actually go to the video store and potentially talk to a video store clerk. Remember, do you remember, do you remember these oh. non-judgmental charmers? Yes, seriously, especially because I primarily just want to watch movies about teenagers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just you get like the eye roll. But yeah. if you do talk to them and they would, you know. They would they would sound off on you know whatever movie is the most the best thing that they're list they're watching right now and you oftentimes took those recommendations you know um, or you went to the recommendation section and explored some videos that that they um, that they recommended um, which really does not align any thread that a computer program could put together. So obviously, the Cinematch gives the consumer a vastly different experience. You're more likely to experience something slightly more dull than if you spoke to a human. That's one of the the issues with Cinematch. And of course, mm-hmm. we experience it to this day. You know, Neil will come over to my place. He'd be like, oh, you got this stuff? I haven't seen this stuff. What is it? You know, and I'll go to his place and he's got other stuff. And I'm like, oh, what is that? Oh, oh my gosh. So early in my net, I mean, God, I've been subscribed to Netflix now for like a gazillion mm. years. Early on when I signed up for it, it was when I was dun da da dating Baxter. And oh. Baxter had a lot of time on his hands, so he would sit and rate movies on Netflix for hours every day. And I still, Kim, well more than a decade later, get recommendations that I know come directly from Baxter. Really? <laughs> yeah, because he would like things that I was like, I don't actually I don't actually like Die Hard. You know, I'm going to yeah, be really yeah. honest. Like, that's not my idea of a fun time. <laughs> and so I would get, like, the craziest, like, not me recommendations. Like, at one point, I thought about canceling my account and starting over. Really? Yeah, Just so a- I'm still dealing mm-hmm. with that legacy, you know? <laughs> can can you go in and, like, put a one star on some of these? Shh, I have no idea. Can you imagine what a project that would be? I that mean, is, right. As far as I could tell, because it would be, like, because you liked – Faust and the Furious, right. you'll love. And I'm like, no, I definitely never said I liked that. You know? <laughs> definitely never liked the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, it was just so bizarre. <laughs> well, okay, anyway, there were a few other movies that were also embroiled in this issue. Obviously, the standout was Napoleon Dynamite. Um but other movies were messing up the program, like The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou and mm. I Heart Huckabees. I love that movie. See? Uh, um, which I never really liked, um, Lost in Translation, and Sideways. Huh. Dun, dun, dun. It all yeah. adds up. Uh-huh. It all adds up, yeah. I mean, I'm curious what it is um, in the last 10 years, because obviously that article came out a long time ago. But So Napoleon Dynamite came out in 2004 with just a tiny budget of about 400000 and it became a massive beast, pulling in a staggering $46.1 million. Dude, it was crazy. Yes. It was like people went to see it like two, three, four times. It was like Titanic. It was. And uh, there's actually some very interesting um Reasoning behind all this, too. So literally overnight, it went viral. Everyone was quoting every line of dialogue from the film, plus that quirky normcore looks, you know, Mm -hmm. turned Napoleon into a fashion icon. 
why did it hit so dramatically? Well, it was engineered to become a cult classic. So oh, really? At, uh-huh. After showing at Sundance, Fox Searchlight outbid MTV, but eventually partnered together for the first time, and they both pulled out all the stops. They ventured into some seriously innovative viral campaigning to essentially release in the marketplace a ready-made cult film. Amanda, do you remember fan clubs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, That's so be- wild. <laughs> even before the movie's release, it had amassed a fan club of over 8,000 people. So I stumbled upon a really eye-opening article from 2004. I think it was even before Napoleon Dynamite came out um, that the LA Times released regarding all of this from writer Chris Lee. In it, he uncovers every tactic they pull out of their toolkit as they built a cult classic from the ground up. So they basically distilled the elements of a cult classic and marketed towards that. First, by engaging a niche audience of art house movie fans and urban hipsters, leveraging a website and a fan club that encouraged young people to join and get their friends to sign up in what they equated to as a friendster-like pyramid scheme. Stop. This is crazy. I know. I this is all making sense because I was thinking about – I knew we were going to talk about Napoleon mm-hmm. Dynamite and I was wondering how it could be – like how it could go viral in a time where nothing could go viral. You know what yeah. I mean? Wow. This is so, wild. I know. It is wild. Um, so they also were using all these incentives – to attend more and more screenings, giving away things like uh, Napoleon Dynamite chapstick and vote for Pedro (laughs) t-shirts all through this website. Um, Additionally, they leveraged the quote viralness of the movie, running ads that highlighted key catchphrases. So LA Times reported, and I quote, To foster an initial cult of personality for Napoleon Dynamite, newspaper ads featured wacky snippets of dialogue from the movie like, We bring you my chapstick, my lips hurt real bad. In the mix, (laughs) intermingled with the obligatory review blurbs. On June 10th, MTV began airing television commercials, employing the fan club's website's homespun visuals and highlighting such Napoleon catchphrases as dang, sweet, idiot, (laughs) (laughs) gosh, remember? Yeah. Um, Lastly, they leveraged MTV's engaged audience of young people and filmed a series of interstitial spots. And I remember they did this for Clueless way back in the 90s. And that's what actually made me want to watch it. So they did these brief character-based commercials starring the movie's cast to build awareness and excitement. Wow. Yeah. So it all worked. And not just because of the marketing dollars that was obviously a huge boost, but what else had positioned this for cult status? Well, first and foremost, nostalgia. The movie celebrated the 80s and 90s with an earnest authenticity towards nostalgia and fashion choices of the misfits to the arguably small-town, lame, cool kids who existed um, in all of our public schools that we Mm -hmm. all remember. So Mm -hmm. we all felt this joint recognition and understanding and irony, which, of course, was huge back then. 
and as we've talked about in multiple episodes. <laughs> Number two, it had a surreal quality that was really being popularized at the time. I'm sure you'll talk about it when you talk about Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also talked about it with Amelie. Um, even the cool kids' houses looked like they were from the 90s, yet all signs point to the fact that this movie was maybe set in the 80s or early 90s. Um, but actually, it was supposedly set in 2004. So they show Napoleon's student ID at the beginning of the title sequence that that um, shows the school year being 2004 to 2005, d- despite all of the stylistic choices. Number three, it was highly quotable, mostly coming from the grumpy, mouth-breathing, permed anti-hero. It really resonated. Pre-meme culture people just repeated phrases um, from shows or movies. Do you remember that? Yes. yes. Just, con- just constant re- repetition of yeah, phrases. constant. So the movie also became embedded in meme culture when that started to take off, keeping the legacy alive throughout all the years. I would not have wanted to be a middle schooler when this movie came out. Oh, my God. <laughs> or a teacher. So apparently the quotable nature swept middle schools across the nation like a plague. Because of the lack of swear words and the use of soft, Mm -hmm. nerdy, nostalgic explanations, it was very repeatable and very annoying. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I mean, I just – (laughs) yeah. Because it was annoying enough. It was. The amount I would have to hear it at – Urban Outfitters every day that I'm kind of like amazed that I didn't hate it. Like I'm surprised I gave myself the chance to see it because I'm the kind of person who will reach this point where I'm like, forget it. I hate this movie, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why most people roll their eyes to this day. They don't really know why they don't like it. It's because of this. I think so too. I think so too. And that's (laughs) like normal human behavior, you know? Yeah. And number four is nerd triumphalism. You know, it's an underdog film based on film the filmmakers' love of 80s films like Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. You know, Napoleon is a beloved spaz with some cool dance skills. So what's not to like? And number <laughs> five is the irreverent and nostalgic 80s and 90s fashion choices, which just could not have hit at a better time. Hipster outsiders appreciated his obliviousness. It cashed in on like 80s uncool fashion that was inevitably ironic and therefore cool. You know, a, basically a premonition of 80s normcore. That vote yeah. for Pedro Ringer T is the gold standard with iron on red letters reminiscent of Little League DIY. From the sweet moon boots to the aviator glasses, the acid wash dad jeans, tucked vintage tees. Oh, and that perm, um, you know, that look, that that kind of just evoked a fondness for simpler times. You know, interestingly enough, in my research, I found that everything was actually sourced around where it was filmed in Idaho at like <sighs> regional thrift stores. The only thing that was borrowed were the moon boots that came from one of the creator, Jerusha Hess's uncles named Wally. and of course the movie heavily featured hammer pants these like drop crotch that Mm -hmm. actually really started to come back in style right around this time period same with that howling wolf t-shirt 
Do oh my gosh, that? we started selling them at Urban Outfitters. Yes. Like they're they're very authentic. It's that one brand. I want to mm-hmm. say it's called like the Mountain or something like that. Mm. And they make all of those animal shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Napoleon also wears he so he wears the Howling Wolf tees. But he also wears equestrian fashion tees too, which are hilarious. So yeah. Man Repeller wrote a piece in 2017 dissecting the fashion choices of Napoleon Dynamite as prophecy of then current trend and being a way way ahead of its time. So Gucci made the nerd cool and geek chic took to the runway. The article likens Napoleon's brother Kips kits to Fenty Puma and spring <laughs> 2018 and to Prada. Um, and what I didn't really know was that Hot Topic, when this came out, had the exclusive license on Napoleon franchise from January through June. Wow. And that they sold, is wild. Yes, yeah. They just sold tons of shit. Just tons. And of course, you know, Hot Topic, really, it's it's, it's even younger than the urban outfitters yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. No wonder why it was just everywhere in the middle schools. Um, and of course, you can imagine that tar- that target demographic buying the pillow and comforter sets, CD holders, buttons, lunch boxes, trading cards, sweatpants, underpants, bikini and thong, shoelaces, magnet sets, lip balms, hats, T-shirts that said everything from Nessie or underwater ally to I heart tater tots. The vote for Pedro's shirt was the chain's best-selling T-shirt ever. Demand was insanely high, and they just kept supplying. They even made dolls and, like, figurines. Mm -hmm. We had them at Urban Outfitters. They (laughs) played, like, quotes from the movie when you pushed a button. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Just future garbage. (laughs) Just future garbage. Yeah, yeah. And after about a year of complete Napoleonic takeover, it was starting to run its course and wear a little thin. Boston Globe's Joanna Weiss reported, and I quote, but there are a few reports from suburbia of early stage Napoleon fatigue. Julie Waxman, a 16-year-old from Easton, said a friend broke up with his girlfriend because she wouldn't stop quoting the movie. Dan Reese, a 17-year-old from Stoughton, side that the joke gets played out after a while so obviously (laughs) i think by like a year and a half after the movie came out people were really kind of over it and it it definitely dwindled down but i do think that napoleon stays famous in meme culture oh for sure so i have a question what happened to the guy who was napoleon dynamite I've never seen him in anything. John has. Yeah, has he done anything else? I don't think he needed He's to. He's just like a- <laughs> I think yes, he does do some other stuff. He does like some some um, productions um, and stuff, but I don't. I think he was pretty typecast. <laughs> um, and you know, he negotiated. He was paid about a thousand dollars to act in this, of for, you know, because it was a low budget film. But when it started breaking in millions of dollars, he now has like a percent of sales. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, The mm-hmm. other thing I was thinking as you we were talking, because it's like Napoleon Dynamite is basically a movie about nothing, right? Like there's not a really yeah. clear plot. And it made me think of another, this was like a later aughts, oddies phenomenon of mumblecore, which were all these films that were just oh. like low budgets, like indie slice of life where maybe nothing would happen. 
Uh, and I kind of wonder <laughs> if Napoleon Dynamite started that. I bet you I think you so. Did. I think so because the movies I'm going to talk about, well, and all the other movies you talked about had a very, very clear like A to B to C to D plot, right? Like stuff happened. It was very clear. Mm-hmm. Someone asked you to give a synopsis of Amelie. You could. Uh, you can't really with Napoleon Dynamite. It's just a series of moments. And I feel like that's what Mumblecore mm-hmm. was going for. Uh, so anyway, just something to think about too. And I think it kind of spurred this low budget film revolution, uh, which mm-hmm. none of the other movies we're talking about today, actually, despite being like these hipster indie darling groundbreaking films, none of them were cheap to make, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would argue that no director of the nineties and the aughts has had as much impact on design decor, even advertising as Wes Anderson, who we have already mentioned multiple times in this episode because he was just, he was like the guy, right? He released his (laughs) first movie, Bottle Rocket, in 1996. And I assume that one was pretty low budget, but nothing else since then has been. This was followed by Rushmore in 1998, which Mm -hmm. really resonated with me as a kid who was in like 50 different after-school activities. So I really love that movie. I actually saw it in the theater, uh, which back then I felt like I went to the movies all the time because I had so much free time, I guess. Um, These movies were like very quirky, a bit emo. They made stars out of Luke and Owen Wilson and Jason Schwartzman, and they made Bill Murray basically beloved by a new generation. But Anderson still hadn't established the like design heavy super twee sort of like world creation that he would become known for. Right. Mm -hmm. That happened in 2001 with the Royal Tannenbaums, a movie. I just rewatched it recently. That still moves me. I rewatched it recently too. It's so good. So good. I remember the first time I saw the Royal Tannenbaums, you know, I feel like I saw it probably within the month it came out. I hadn't read a lot of press about it, so I didn't mm-hmm. really know because it was minimal inter- internet era, right? I remember not knowing at all what it was going to be like and just being so surprised right. and delighted by the whole thing. Just just everything from, from start, start oh. to, to finish, even this, like the story, because you know how sometimes you're watching something and you're just like, God, this resonates so much with me. And then you get to like three quarters of the way through and the storyline just pitters out and turns into something really stupid. And you're just like, God, it, this oh, didn't do that. And it's like fantastical and yet relatable. Mm-hmm. It's so intense emotionally. And it says so much about people's relationships with their family, with their father. I mean, I, oh, man, it's, it's a rare movie that I can watch again and again over the span of two decades and feel like, wow, this movie is still really good. Mm. Um, it has the most perfect soundtrack. I think yes. there are two key moments in the film that are so perfectly soundtracked that they still live with me. One is when Margot and Richie meet at the bus station and Nico's These Days is playing. I just... Mm-hmm. And she gets off the oh, bus so and her coat and her eyeliner. And, uh, oh. um, and then when Richie shaves off his hair and attempts suicide while Elliot yes. Smith's Needle in the Hay is playing. I mean, I just – both are so perfect. 
this film inspired Halloween costumes for years. It probably still is. Yes. There's probably someone right now who's like, listen, if people have parties this year, I'm going as Margot and Richie, right? Or let's, yeah, let's all, let's all go as the Royal Town. Yeah, seriously, because you can do the fur coat and some eyeliner to be Margot. Mm -hmm. You can wear a sweatpant, a sweatband and a beard. Nearly every male hipster I knew in Williamsburg was the Owen Wilson character. It's so on point, right? Um, You can also do the matching Adidas tracksuits of Chaz and his kids. I've seen whole groups of people roll up in that. Yes. What really stuck with everyone that made this movie so iconic is every last detail of every set, of every bit of wardrobe, of every scene. I mean, Anderson literally built an entire fully fleshed out world for his characters. And a visionary. Seriously. And every time I watch this movie, I see, I notice a new detail. Mm -hmm. It's just so incredible. I actually... Highly recommend um, Unspooled, which is a podcast about films, did an episode about Royal Tannenbaums a while back, not that long ago. And it ugh, it just made – I had to go watch it again. You know, mm-hmm. they just called out a lot of things I didn't know about some of the acting choices and whatnot. Um, Ooh, and it, and, and I should, it, I it, listen to that. It really holds up. Um, Anderson told Dazed in 2012 when he was asked – you know, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? He said, I wanted to be an architect. I didn't even know where I got that idea from. I think I was told you should be an architect somewhere early on, and I just latched onto it. My idea of being an architect was envisioning variations of what my room could be, split level, secret chambers, transportation in and out, that sort of stuff. I guess that's why I enjoy getting to build these fantasy locations, because they all do have this element of whimsy but just also just intense detail. And this like the Royal Tannenbaums, I can't emphasize enough, did not look or feel like anything we had ever seen in a film. Yeah. I can't even imagine so how much it refreshing. cost. Oh, oh yeah. so, yes. And um, oh, music, and yeah. acting oh. choice. It's just the people that were Angelica Houston. I know. I know. Oh. Oh. Everyone in it was just incredible. The Royal Tannenbaums are what made – Wes Anderson, the twee director that shaped that like crafty, vintage, quirky aesthetic of the DIY hipsters. The Guardian said with a certain tone of bitterness, we'll link to this article at the website, over two decades, the meticulous Rushmore auteur has helped spawn an entire subgenre of American cinema, a landfill site choka with handlebar mustaches, mm-hmm. melancholia, and tasteful alt-folk music. Mm-hmm. And they meant this so in a snarky what? way. But, to you? But it did. <laughs> it was like all the hipsters, no matter what sub-hipster they were, whether they were a ye old mm-hmm. or a DIY or even a party hipster, everyone could agree that the Royal Tanner Moms yeah. was a good movie, you know? Appreciated by all. For sure. And it was like how you screened out people that you would be interested in dating or being friends with, you know? Mm-hmm. And Wes Anderson made tons of lovely movies in the aughts and onward. I still I still stand by Royal Tannenbaums is my favorite, but he made, the, he made the Grand Budapest Hotel, which critics consider his best film. It inspired nine gajillion hashtag pink aesthetic posts on Tumblr, like so many. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
all the movies I'm going to talk about are really have a great foundation in Tumblr, and it's making me want to start a new Tumblr. Anyway, uh, Moonrise Kingdom created years of Halloween costumes as well. Mm. I still see those out there, as did the Life Aquatic. Like, oh, do you have a beard? Do you have a beanie? You've got your Life Aquatic <laughs> costume, right? The Darjeeling Limited took us to India and inspired so many hipsters to start saving to go to India. It was something I would hear about all the time at parties and whatnot. And I actually really enjoyed the Isle of Dogs because it was just like so Japanese and on point. Anderson's aesthetic could be found everywhere from the actual this is an instagram account i've been following Mm -hmm. for like a million years it's called at accidentally wes anderson um to advertising and when i started to dig into anderson's impact on advertising i was actually really shocked because i thought i was going to see it more in like his impact on filmmaking or design and really advertising is where you still once someone points it out to you you start to see the effects everywhere around you there was an Oreos ad about a like a mini market that only sold miniature yeah. Oreos. There was an equally weird and twee Oregon healthcare exchange commercial. This was like legendary, like it got made fun of on John Oliver. <laughs> um, there, Tommy Hilfiger did a very, very Wes Anderson commercial. There was a Gucci campaign in 2016, which I put a photo in here for you to see. It's like so Wes Anderson, I can't even take it. Anderson himself even directed commercials for Ikea, AT&T, some other brands. I watched some of them today. They were so quirky and surreal. They have this like certain kind of humor that we come to expect from a Wes Anderson film where it's like funny and quirky, but it's also so earnest and sincere. Mm -hmm. If you see something highly stylized, very vintage and super twee and funny, well, it was influenced by Wes Anderson for sure because people didn't make movies like that before him, you know? In general, many sort of pop culture critics believe that Wes Anderson and his films have influenced an entire generation to curate both their personal spaces and their social media presences. And I can I can see that for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Like now, of course, you have to take a picture of a cute house you see, right? Or a good color story. I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, I kind of enjoy that. But, because you know, I think it's just, like, nice to see something cute, right? But others, there's, like, it's really interesting to start reading about Wes Anderson on the internet in 2021. Because it's very evenly split between people who are like, this guy, he's so talented. He's such a genius. And people who are like, I hate this guy. He ruined everything. Yeah, Yeah, he ruined it for all of us. Now people just care about how things look and has to be cute, blah, blah, blah. It does. I do care about how everything looks and that it has to be cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I will say, yeah, you watch his movies and you're like, wow, all the movies in the 90s look like crap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That same Guardian article that I cited earlier said, quote, accidentally, Wes Anderson's success bears out a very basic fact one that critics have to concede. A lot of Anderson is very popular because a lot of it is very pleasing. Taste, though, is a tricky thing, and too much of it can seem suspicious or affected. This certainly applies to Anderson, the perceived high priest of hipsterism and twee. Chances are, if you spent the past decade railing against morons drinking cocktails out of jam jars, you have, in part, been raging against him. And I... Okay, 
I mean, I, I get jam jars. There's nothing. I mean, granted, I don't know Wes Anderson in real life, but there's mm-hmm. nothing about him that has ever come across as inauthentic. Me especially too. his films yeah. seem so sincere and they don't. Yes. I know that he is literally worrying about every tiny detail. I appreciate that. You know, like he, he's worth every dime he makes off of a film, you know? Um, I agree. And it's not like they're just like, oh, this is a movie that looks good, but is stupid. Like, it's just the whole package is there. It's also notable that he hasn't churned out a ton of movies in the past 20 years because he puts a lot of work into them. Now, is it Wes Anderson's fault that we have all these terrible Pinterest weddings? Maybe. Maybe that is. Maybe there is a line there. It's a long one, and it starts (laughs) with him, and it ends at like some – like you know pinterest barn wedding where there's jam jars wrapped in burlap i don't know that's i mean that's that's giving him credit for you know for all these different aesthetic choices and and if it's not going to be a wes anderson themed wedding it's going to be something else like do you want to see a bunch of sideways themes wedding no (laughs) it's going to be something everyone's just like dumpy i don't know i don't know yeah i mean i think that yeah I do think that Wes Anderson and the next director I'm going to talk about really – well, I know because they're such, ma- they're such massive Tumblr fodder in the first place that they did really make people start to think about aesthetics mm-hmm. in a different way. I do think that like now Pinterest I know is all kinds of other stuff. I don't really use it that much anymore. But in the beginning, Pinterest was very similar to Tumblr in that you were just – collecting inspirational images for yourself and i can see a direct line between wes anderson and pinterest for sure just as i can see i actually have proof of wes anderson being a big influence on tumblr you know Mm -hmm. and so knowing that millennials in the early aughts were really like swimming around in this sea of like wes anderson and Sofia Coppola, who I'm going to talk about next, and, you know, like Lana Del Rey and whatnot, like mm-hmm. all that stuff went into a blender and we all came out wearing flower crowns. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. <laughs> we all came out wearing flower crowns totally. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I guess I spoiled who I'm going to talk about mm-hmm. next, which is Sofia Coppola, who is super visual, super inspiring, super Tumblr friendly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Now – there's no doubt that she benefited greatly from nepotism, obviously, right? Her father is Francis Ford Coppola, and she made her film debut as an infant in The Godfather. She also appeared in The Godfather 2 as a child, so you're probably not surprised to hear that she also appeared in The Godfather 3, mm-hmm. which ended her acting career. <laughs> she was so brutally panned for her performance in The Godfather Part 3 she wa- She was named Worst Supporting Actress and Worst New Star Ooh. at the 1990 Golden Raspberry Awards. So she was just like, okay, done with this. There are people who literally say to this day, and they're probably just like mean incel types, that she ruined the entire legacy of the Godfather oh, franchise by okay. being such a bad actress. Okay. I know, I know, right? Yeah, that sounds like someone who's on... 
what's that app? Oh, Reddit? Clubhouse. Oh, no, Clubhouse, yeah. Clubhouse, just being, just being an ass. Yeah, ass, totally. about hoes. Yeah, is it okay to call Sofia Coppola a whole ho because she ruined The Godfather? Anyway. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> After that, you know, she's like, okay, I think I'm maybe not yeah. meant to be an actress. She pursued fashion, photography, and painting. And when you know that, as she was doing all these things, as she tried to find her thing, you start to see how that made her a good director. Mm-hmm. Because her debut film knocked it out of the park. And that was The Virgin Suicides, yes. which was released in 1999. It was the film version of the 1993 novel of the same name mm-hmm. by Jeffrey Eugenides. And I read this book. Me too. Was obsessed. I've read it probably 20 times. So beautiful. So beautiful. Oh, just really, just really gets me. Mm-hmm. Um, It's definitely in my top 20 books of all time list. And when I heard you know, here's this woman who I don't really know, Sofia Coppola, definitely someone you would see in Sassy I mean, Jane. She right? ruined the Godfather movies. She ruined that. You know, I've been living this whole my whole life hearing that. <laughs> no, I'd never heard that before. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, like I remember her being in Sassy and in Jane mm-hmm. and kind of being like aware of her as just being this like really beautiful Hollywood it kid. Girl. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. totally. Uh when I heard that someone was making a movie of the Virgin Suicides, I was like, how could they? It's so complicated. The storytelling in it is very different than anything else I've ever read because the people telling the story, it's not even about them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, how will they do this? Will they ruin the way I pictured it in my mind? Like, I'm really stressed about this. I go see the movie, and this might be the first time in my like life that the movie was as good as the book. Like just so good. And that, you know, if you're a book person and then you go see the movie, most of the time it is so disappointing. It is. It's, it's really so hard to capture a book, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And with, I mean, you're talking about the soundtrack, but like the soundtrack to go with it. Oh, just set it was tone. just perfect. Mm-hmm. And she kind of established Costumes her... too. Oh, Sorry. yeah, all of it. All of it. I mean, Tumblr fodder for, for decades. Mm-hmm. She kind of established her sig- signature elements, like that tight visual concept that creates a mood. Like there's so much mood, like mm-hmm. all caps mood. mood Hashtag in... aesthetics. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> she has this trope, which I started to realize from all of her movies, which is the exterior shot of someone longingly gazing through a window. (laughs) (laughs) And just also that like art of doing most of the storytelling between the lines where the exposition and the feelings and the action of the movie have nothing to do with the script. Mm. Just like really light on dialogue and heavy on the dreamlike meditative imagery ah just so like, good like tumblr like images you want to look at oh and you for just, like, sure consume. for sure i found an essay uh about the film written by genevieve kosky and we'll share it on the website and i have to share this description from it because it just nailed it and this is a person who like definitely loves sofia coppola mm-hmm. and does not blame her for whatever godfather nonsense she says quote the virgin suicides take a similar tack with the less glamorous but no less stuff-filled confines of a suburban 1970s era Michigan home. The Lisbon girls' bedrooms are shrines to adolescent girlhood, mixing tokens of their impending womanhood, perfume bottles, makeup, jewelry, 
and protracted adolescence, childlike toys, trinkets, and drawings with overt spiritual iconography, much of it Virgin Mary-centric, that calls to both the religious upbringing that keeps them confined and the story's broader themes of purity, sin, and worship. Another telling material symbol that pops up outside their bedrooms, the table display of gilded baby shoes that welcome visitors to the Lisbon home. None of these connections are vocalized via dialogue, though they do have their roots in Eugenity's source text. They're revealed through a studious, judicious deployment of art direction that's directly traceable to Coppola's photography and fashion backgrounds. And it's true because one thing I remember about the book, especially like, I don't want to spoil the book or the movie if you haven't seen or read either, but when you know Kim, there's there's sort of like two halves to the book. And in the second half, the girls are basically confined to their homes. And there's this just like suffocating amount of stuff everywhere, like clothes hanging to dry and makeup strewn all over the floor and just magazines. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's gross. They even talk in the book about it having like a weird sort of smell Mm -hmm. because they're all pent up in there. And you almost pick up that smell from the movie. Like it's just Mm -hmm. so well done. And if anybody else had made this movie, it would not have hit in the same way because it meant tracking down every piece to create that like suffocating sense of space. Like it's just so good. It's, it's one of the first times that a movie actually fit and like aligned with the vision, like the visuals I created in my mind while I was reading. It's Mm -hmm. just so good. The Virgin Suicides, like Kim has mentioned, has amazing music and actually it has two soundtracks. So there's the primarily like the seventies music that you hear in the movie, which is so good. <laughs> it's like so good. Um, that includes Hearts Magic Man when they introduce the dreamy Trip Fontaine, who is like <laughs> the hunk. Like, never has a better song been picked for that moment. I swear, it's like so on point. And then there's a second soundtrack, which is the like moody, dreamlike mm-hmm. score created by French duo Air, which was probably about the coolest mm-hmm. group of people you could have make your soundtrack in what was I that 1999 it. yeah, yeah it's so good it holds up doesn't feel dated at all like wes anderson the devil is in the details here the set design like i mentioned the wardrobe oh the clothes actually are so on trend right now it's mind-blowing like this Movie is ostensibly set in the 70s, but it feels timeless, maybe because the 70s are always in trend in one way or another now. We live in this constant 70s loop or something. Yeah. (laughs) The lighting is so glorious and dreamlike. The music, like I said, these tell the stories as much or more than the actual dialogue. The aesthetics are – their aesthetics are very different, but both Anderson and Coppola influenced a generation of creators with with this ability to create a mood via visual language. So Coppola followed up The Virgin Suicides with another banger, Lost in Translation, a movie that managed just miraculously to convey a sense of loneliness in what is literally the world's largest city. Tokyo. And 
there's another Wes Anderson intersection here because Bill Murray is yeah. in this one, right? He's definitely a through line, and Bill Murray trended. He oh, was a huge trend for sure. Remember when he would like show up at people's parties in Brooklyn yes. in the Audis? Yeah, I've, I've, yes, I definitely saw him. I would go to his his um, son's restaurant a lot and get the nachos. Yeah, I mean, he would be there drinking at the bar. And I think that is really interesting because Bill Murray was a movie star to our parents. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he's just as important to us. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen a lot, you know? Um, also, the music in just like true aughts hipster fashion, this soundtrack is yes. just so good. It features oh, Air, God. the Jesus and Mary Chain. Jesus and Mary Chain blew up after this. They did. They did. Yes. Or came I mean, back blow up. You know? I can't even think of this movie without thinking of their song yes. from the movie. Just like Honey. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Uh, Phoenix was in this. I don't mm-hmm. know if people care about Phoenix anymore, but that was like <laughs> extra cool at the time. Um, and Sebastian Tellier, who was kind of an American apparel darling, but is also like really, really cool. Um, there's also a scene in a strip club with a Peaches song. So mm. just like really hitting all the points right um i'll say i love lost in translation i rewatched that this summer it holds up it's it's not my favorite of her films though is it an amazing film yes for sure Mm -hmm. um here's a fun fact about it though coppola started filming lost in translation without bill murray actually being signed to the film but like the entire script the entire movie relied on him agreeing to do it and so they were already filming oh wow and they were in japan filming when he finally signed on she's always surprised that people actually love this film calling it a self-indulgent personal project interesting and i do think it there i mean listen this movie had a major impact on people that was another one that people would talk about all the time everyone wanted to go to japan i still see people going to that bar at the hyatt which is in shibuya regardless people still go there to have drinks and be like look i'm at the lost in translation (laughs) bar and that's like 20 years ago or something Mm -hmm. so that's pretty wild um next was marie antoinette which is another one of my favorites. Uh, there's more Wes Anderson intersection here because Jason Schwartzman, who was in yes. Rushmore and was in Darjeeling Limited, he's in this one. Indie darlings. Totally, totally. I always thought he was just so cute mm-hmm. anyway, although I think he might be really short. He's, um, he's very short. Yeah, he's very short. You can tell. Actually, I would say the first time I noticed that he was short was in Marie Antoinette. Um, oh. By this third film – once again, I can't believe this is only her third film because there's no way this movie wasn't insanely expensive to shoot. It had to have been, right? Because it's so just stunning. Uh, You can see that she's obsessed with this theme, which is, is identity our choice or is it thrust upon us? Because you look at like, okay, in the Virgin Suicides, these sisters had no control over their lives whatsoever. And it was ultimately their downfall, right? Um, in Lost in Translation, the main character whose name I'm blanking on, played by Scarlett Johansson, she she kind of is just there keeping her husband company 
but he's really busy. So she's just super lonely and feels lost. Like she has no ownership of her life. And then you get to Marie Antoinette, who is perhaps the most extreme example of having no ownership over your identity because her entire life was dictated by her family, her birthright, and her ability to generate heirs. It's like the most extreme version. That's awesome. Yeah, okay. I love this film so much. Like just Mm -hmm. the aesthetic, the music. Once again, the music was amazing here. Dreamy lighting. It's just all so in point. And it also, unsurprisingly, inspired tons and tons of Tumblr Hashtag pastel aesthetic vlogs. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many photos from this. And they, people still, oh, still salivate. Still. You know what? And I rewatched oh. this one this summer, too. And I was like, oh, just as enjoyable as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we st- we have seen it playing out in tons of Audi's fashion and style trends that are kind of coming back around really fast. Big hair, pastel hair, faux beauty marks flower crowns. I think now that like maximalism decor of the sets, which this whole film was filmed at Versailles, that aesthetic is making a comeback now as we move away from minimalism. Like it couldn't be more the opposite. Even these cakes, all oh, those sweets yes, and desserts yes. everyone's making. Yeah. Uh, and I like, seriously, there's just, this is another movie that doesn't have a lot of dialogue. Actually, you like, you might think that it does and then you watch it and there's more just a lot of like her existing, mm-hmm. her wearing fabulous outfits, these parties where they're just eating crazy desserts and like there's just buffets of beautiful food everywhere and amazing color, so much pastel and it's just – it's like eye candy. And yet when the movie ends with you know them being in the abandoned palace knowing that they're going to be taken away by you know the – the crowds there to basically make them pay, you feel so much empathy for them, you know? Um, Coppola continued to work through the Audis. She made the bling ring. Have you seen that? I actually have not seen that. I don't know why. It's an interesting story. It's not – it doesn't have her vibe. So it's Mm -hmm. like I can barely talk about it. It's enjoyable, but it's not eye candy in the way that these other movies were. And I think it's because the bling ring has a much darker aesthetic. It's no longer like this dreamy, like airy. Fluffy, light. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just – it's fine. It's enjoyable. Um, nothing really ever recaptured the mood and aesthetic of her three aughts films. So interesting to see if she makes something else. But these are so iconic. I would say if you made a Venn diagram of Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson, the intersecting area would be massive, and it might just be called Tumblr aesthetic. <laughs> exactly. Totally. I couldn't Hashtag believe. Aesthetic. I just couldn't believe how I went back today and checked Tumblr and was like searching oh, and just the sheer volume of of stills from all of their films. It's like half of Tumblr. Everything's yeah, been posted. Yeah. The colors. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh. And don't forget about Sofia Coppola's Blanc de Blanc. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I can't one believe of my I mentioned that. One of my favorites. If you don't know, you can get her wine in cans uh, with little like extendo straws. I mean, that. I actually even prefer to get the um, the bottle 
and I because the bottle comes in this elaborate cellophane wrap. It feels like so fancy. Yeah, it feels so fancy. It's only twenty dollars, and it's just delicious, mm-hmm. delightful. It's like it's like a champagne, but just better. And it was actually made for her wedding. Wow, and it's like always mm-hmm. such a nice like hostess gift to bring when you come over it to someone's is. house or to take on a picnic. It mm-hmm. it delights everyone. Absolutely. And it is her basically her aesthetic. I don't know what time frame it came from. I know that I had it in like 2005 or something, or 2006. Yeah, that's when I feel like – I feel like that was when it hit the scene, which was great because we already knew her now. Like she was – you know, people were obsessed with her. And I – then the cans came out and like those cans, every time I went to like a party or a picnic, I would bring the little cans with the little oh, extendo yeah, the straws. Cans. People love those. Uh, just – so it's like – it's interesting to me because, you know, if we talk a lot about a lot a lot of 90s movies, which I'm sure at some point we're going to do the 90s trends, you know, it would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Actually, the 90s are so fascinating to me. But you look at a lot of film from the 90s and they look so 90s. But all the films we've talked about tonight, even sideways with their frumpy, gross clothes, <laughs> they have – a timeless feeling where like you can't quite figure out when they were made. Even even Lost in Translation with like uh what's his name? Giovanni Rabisi's like ultimate hipster arts photographer vibe. Mm-hmm. He still looks like he could be happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. It's so fascinating to me. Um, well, that's that's all. That's all she wrote, guys. That's all she wrote. Now I'm just thinking about the Sofia Coppola Blanc de Blanc. I know. I'm like, I need to go to the liquor store tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So cute. Anyway, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. And we'll be back next week with Wendy. So see you then. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.